A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Nothing the Hedgerows Say by Mark Anthony Owen I'm enclosed by encrypted conversation, thickets of pulses and whistles and clicks, songs, each border with a voice distinct as a man's, each tree a tongue. I hear the grass gossiping, repeating what it thinks the wind has told it, hear it whisper a secret from blade to blade rush it away in all directions at once. Silence from me and the water overhead, now a dragon, now a sleeping boy. Dumb shapes, fathoming nothing, nothing the hedgerows say. Mark, where did this poem come from? So, this poem uh, came about uh, because I was on a walk on the evening before my 38th birthday, which was a few years ago now. Um, And it was uh, sort of mid-April. It was a um, warmish evening. um, And I was walking through a field of ripening uh, wheat, which I refer to in the poem as grass, but it was in fact a very dark coloured wheat. And as I was walking along, what I was hearing in the, the hedgerows and the, and the trees around me were all of these conversations, as I said in the poem, between the various um, breeds of bird. And I became suddenly very aware of the fact that all of this was happening around me and I didn't understand any of it. How could I? I, I, I don't speak bird. Um, and it just sort of struck me as I felt closed out of of, of nature's conversation with itself, um, and I then sort of started to think to myself, well, uh, a lot of poems that I have written up to that point were very visually led. Um, it, it's about how I saw mm-hmm. things and how they looked like other things, and so on and so forth. But this poem felt like it needed to be about the sound of things. So the poem is all structured around the idea of the sound that I could hear around me at the time, um, which is why I talk about you know, these kind of thickets of pulses and whistles and clicks, which you know, in, in many ways were song, as most people would understand that. And then, of course, once I'd become aware of the conversations that these birds seem to be having towards the, the, the end of the day, um, then looked around and I saw the wind was blowing through this, uh, this wheat behind me. Um, and it was kind of filtering up like a wave of, of, of wind through the grasses. And the image in my mind immediately was they're talking to each other. Each, each 
bit of grass is taking what they believe the wind is telling them and taking it all the way through the field from one end to the other, um, which I thought was quite a, quite a nice image. Um, and then as I turned around uh, in the other direction to walk back towards home, um, I looked up and the sky had a kind of uh, pinkish hue that it sometimes gets in the uh, in the early evening as the sun's going down. And th- when it says in the poem, you know, now a dragon, now a sleeping boy, um, those were literally the shapes that I saw in the clouds above me. And what I thought it would be nice to do as I came to kind of form this poem was take that idea of sound and almost invert it and kind of say, you know, these things were making no sound at all. And like me, could understand nothing of the sounds that were happening on the ground around me. So that was really the basis of the poem. It was kind of like a, a sound poem rather than a visual one. Yeah, so listening to you talk, Mark, and also looking at the poem again, I'm really struck by this wonderful combination of precision and magic that you have. I mean, there's a real accuracy in, in what you were saying, that it was literally conversation that you were hearing from the birds. And similarly, you know, the water overhead, its that's literally what it is, but there's a... That there's a magic in the idea that you're listening into conversation from another species that's, that's kind of encrypted and you can't hear. And similarly, there's a riddling quality to the idea of having water overhead, which, which sounds weird, but then I guess it is weird, isn't it? Yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, it's... I guess one of the things that every poet wants to do or tries to do is to find uh, a non-typical way of expressing the things that we've all seen described in very sort of well, what are now cliche terms by, you know, the writers of of, of lyrics all down the ages. Um, we're always looking for a new way to say something. So I could have said clouds, of course I could. I could have implied clouds simply by the idea of, you know, seeing shapes in the sky above me. But I figured that the water felt more like it fitted with the kind of the natural theme of the poem. And I mean, did you write this down very quickly after doing the walk or did you, is is this emotion recollected in tranquility as Wordsworth would have it? This uh, was scribbled into my phone uh, in in my note-taking app while I was on the walk. Um, and, And it was literally as each scene unfolded in front of me, I was kind of tapping it down on the phone. Um, I took it home and this was around the time, and we'll come to this a little bit uh, later, I'm sure, uh, where I had just begun to write uh, syllabically, which is where the structure of the poem is you're Mm -hmm. counting the number of syllables uh, in each line of poetry and you're conforming to a a pattern. Um, And I had just begun to do this and I had this, this form of um of hendecasyllabic lines which is 11 syllable lines and i wanted to play yeah. with it and this was the first poem that i ever took through that process in a really in-depth way um and so while the poem as as read today and as, as can be seen on sabria uh, is is looks as though it, it it's been worked and worked and reworked and that is true it has um it's actually very close to what i originally wrote despite I mean, literally years of tinkering and rewriting and even changing whole sections in the middle of stanzas. But this is essentially as I tapped it out in my phone all those years ago. And I'm not too surprised to hear that, Mark, because obviously it is, like all the poems on Sabrera, it's very clearly worked and finished and polished, but it's got this wonderful quality of freshness and immediacy 
And the book that it's reminding me of is Ted Hughes' collection, Moortown Diary, which I know from reading interviews and letters of his, he actually kept the diary every day of what what he'd just been doing on the farm. So it's, it's a poem about a farm... Uh, time that he spent farming living in North Devon which is actually the landscape where I grew up and it was one of the first books that got me into poetry because it just had that immediate freshness of this is a scene that I I know from walking down the lane you know up, up the road from my parents house and a lot of the poems in Subruria particularly this one have they, they've got that immediacy from from it's like you know you you say you were taking notes field notes while you're actually out on the walk is this something that you do a lot of yeah i think when i when i do the um the, the rural side of of Siberia, and i'll i'll return to that idea in just a moment um yeah it generally it generally is when i'm out and about in the field literally sometimes um and so uh, there isn't time to try to remember it all and get home and scribble it all down i i need to do it you know as i'm going along um and it probably would be um, uh, worthwhile to talk about what, what I mean when I say suburbia, because we've used the term a few times uh, in this interview already. But yeah, please do, because it's it's part of a wider project, isn't it? This poem. It it, it is. Yeah, I mean, suburbia is not a term that I coined, but I hadn't seen it on the internet or anywhere before I'd thought of it. So, you know, they say that there's no, no such thing as an original idea and that somebody out there's probably had the similar mm-hmm. thought that you've had. Um, it was only years after I'd first thought about the spaces in which I've always lived, that which are mainly suburban, but always with some rural element in them, um, that I found out that this word had been used for a very similar reason. I think somewhere out in America originally. Um, but I, so I take mm-hmm. it and I, I try to own it. You know, I bought the, the, the domain name and I, I had this conception of a, of a project where two thirds of what I wrote were going to be more suburban poems uh, and one third would be more rural. Um, because what I found as I was looking around um, various writers that I admired was that there are some very classic suburban writers and there have been you know for, for many many years mm-hmm. there are equally some some great writers of rural poetry countryside poetry called it what you will there are writers who focus on the metropolises and the cities there are writers who focus on the coast on the wildernesses and the highlands and the mountains but nobody as far as i could see was combining this very quiet almost middle englandy sort of view of small what we think of as suburban spaces which but right up to countryside and the two the two lives the two types of lives that go on in those spaces are almost kind of intermingle um it's not unusual to see a horse walking along the street here or literally a tractor parked in somebody's front drive in what would otherwise be a very ordinary housing estate so because i'd always grown up in these spaces because this was really all i knew I thought, well, I'm going to be honest, I'm just going to write about these things and I'm going to bracket it all under one single title, which is Subruria. And, you know, when I saw Subruria.com, which is the website where this is all hosted, by the way, folks, um, do, do go there and check out the poems. Um I I just thought you'd nailed something. It was almost like the guy, isn't it the guy in the, the Moliere play who realised he'd been speaking prose all his life without realising it. I realised I've been living in Subruria all my most of my life, and that's where I grew up. It, like I say, it was in North Devon. Hughes's Moortown poems are really the hardcore. What it's like to be farming out on the moors. 
But I was living on the edge of a, a housing estate and there was literally a field over the road. We would go and play football. The farmer would come and chase us out of it occasionally or um, sometimes there would be you know, more or less cows in there. So you had to take account of that. And I think you've really captured something with these poems about what it's like, you know, the intersection between civilization, um, suburban normality and banality and, and the mystery of nature. Yeah, I, I, and I think, like yourself, I've lived always in these kinds of spaces. I mean, I grew up on on a, a large new council housing estate that was built on the uh, on the edge of uh, the town of Bournemouth, which people traditionally think of as seaside, but go further inland, and it's very mm. suburural. It really is. There's a big housing estate, and yeah. then you just butt straight into farms, uh, and that's the life I had. My my house literally next door to it was the field that started off towards the farm, and there was a play park right outside my front door. So these things just always coexisted in my mind. They were my frame of of normality, I suppose. Um, and I suppose I wanted to capture this, but what I didn't want to do with Saburian and what I'm always mindful of not doing is trying to write a poem which encapsulates both the suburban and the rural in the same poem. I kind of want it to be that two thirds of the poems are going to have a more suburural, human, uh, everyday, personal relationship type focus. And the other third generally will be something on, from the natural world and the and the world around me in which I live. Yeah, that was very much my experience of reading it. That you know, some poems are, are really almost the social comedy or, or tragedy. Um, lots of everyday uh, human details, and then you've got something like this, which is you know the realm of Hughes or I don't know Emily Dickinson. There's a kind of you know a kind of a sense of mystical communing with nature almost with the idea of the the grass whispering a secret from blade to blade and you know it's 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 really wonderful so could you say a bit more about Subruria the project because it's you've taken quite an unusual and, and a bold approach I mean f so for one thing anybody who hasn't seen it listening to this please go to subruria.com and check it out for one thing, Mark has done a beautiful job of presenting poetry online. He's got lovely, understated, but really atmospheric graphics, um, beautiful typography and audio recordings of every poem. And then you're doing this quite bold thing, Mark, aren't you, of, of saying that you're going to release the poems on April the 12th. Is it three years apart? It is. It is. That's where it started. Yeah. So, so what's... What's behind that, the significance? Is there any numerology involved here? Uh, I I turned 45 on the day that I started mm -hmm. it. Um, and I released 45 poems. And it just felt like that was a, a real landmark for me. I always wanted to publish a book. And I'm doing air yeah. quotes there. Um, and I figured, what better time than my mid-40s? It's time to kind of, you know get a hold of this thing, stop procrastinating, actually build something and put it out there. And that is for the reason why it is uh, self-published as well, is because I wanted complete creative control. Mm. Um, having worked in the creative industries for many years, in advertising particularly, I found that whilst you can get terrific creativity in a collaborative sense, sometimes you want a singular vision just to deliver what it is that that person wants to put into the world. And so... As you say, the, the graphics are very understated, the typography, all the rest of it. What I was trying to do, particularly in the desktop version, more so than with the limitations of mobile, was to create an almost coffee book feel on a web page. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
lots of white space, lots of spaces for the poem to be the main focus. And you'll notice that, you know, that from, from the red uh, coloured headline, uh, headline, sorry, titles, uh, to, the, to, to the, the, the darkness of the text for the poems itself, everything else around it is muted because I want you to focus on the words. That's what matters. And you put the word book in air quotes just now. Will there be a book, a print version of this, or will it be forever digital? My aim is to keep it digital. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not open to uh, approaches from anybody who says, I've got a great idea of how we could do this as a book or whatever. But at the moment, my focus is very much on the digital side of things. Um, I see it as... uh, I suppose, well, I had a conversation with a couple of poets on uh, Twitter back in 2012, I think it was. And when they were kind of listening to me rambling on about how I thought this thing was going to be, they said, it sounds very Walt Whitman. It sounds very Leaves of, of, of Grass, hmm. uh, um, where the thing will expand over time. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah, I hadn't thought of it at that point. But then I thought, yeah, actually, that's, that's probably quite right. Uh, it would be dishonest of me to release a number of albeit online collections with different titles, because ultimately I'm always writing about the same things in the same spaces. I'm going through various themes and coming at them from different angles. So it made sense to release one project with one title and to then do it in what I'm calling releases, which are in effect, you know, uh, collections slash chaps, which builds together to make a body of work. And so for anyone who's maybe not familiar with the publishing history of Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He did several different editions, didn't he? That it, it kind of expanded over time or changed over time. It, it did. It expanded and contracted at one point, I believe. <laughs> right. um, but uh, but yeah, he he just essentially worked on the same thing over and over again. And I'm I'm sure then there are probably other people out there who've done it as well. But I haven't uh, encountered those. And Whitman's probably the, the most um, obvious example. Um, but yeah, I the more I thought about it, the more I thought. This is the most honest way in which I can present what it is I'm trying to do. And why the releases every three years? Well, I work very slowly, which is ironic because when I first came back to poetry, as I always say, in my kind of uh, late uh, 30s, I, I was writing very quickly. I was barely editing. I had all these kind of free form poems with no real structural meter to them. And I was initially quite happy to just leave it at that. But then poems like uh, Hedgerows came along and others in the early days of working out this, my approach to syllabic poetry. And that was when I started to think these things would be better if I took more time, if I crafted these things, if I lived with them, Mm -hmm. not just for weeks, but months and even years. And some of these poems have taken me literally 10 years to finish. And so I figured that if I'm going to take that approach with my writing then, yeah, every three years doesn't seem unrealistic. I I should have enough of a next batch ready to go for that release, um, and I can still be working on others for one in the future. If I set the the cadence any shorter than that, I'd feel under pressure, especially given other poetry projects that I work on, and, of course, just living Mm -hmm. daily life. Okay, so the next release is due for April 2024 and that doesn't feel like pressure that feels like a a good commitment to have on your horizon yeah definitely and you mentioned numerology earlier and I am a bit of a stickler for numbers and dates and so on it's it's just a, a side of me um and as I said when I was 45 I published 45 poems 
Um, I've then decided what's going to happen because there are going to be nine main releases plus what I call an apocrypha, the kind of the the, the, the leftovers, but but publishable leftovers at the very end of the project. Right. Um, what I'm doing initially at, at 45, I publish 45 poems. At 54, I'll publish 54 poems, and at 63, I'll publish 63 poems. Wow. In the inter in the intervening ones, we're going to get. Uh, as we just had last year uh, with release two, that was 36 poems, and that's a fixed 36. So every every uh, two, five, whatever it is, they're all going to have a fixed number of 36 poems, and then there'll be another release after that, the third release, one that's coming up, as you say, in 2024, uh, which will be just uh, 27 poems. So that way, I'm also not putting myself under too much pressure to finish too many poems too quickly as I move towards the next, what I call, major release. And it's going to keep the professors busy for years, interpreting all this significance. It's like in Shakespeare's sonnets, there's supposed to be a load of Elizabethan numerology and, you know, the, the numbers of the different, you know, the grand climacteric or whatever it is. And <laughs> in, in, in different sonnets have got different numbers because of their <laughs> significance. So, um, I, I can tell you... I can tell you actually, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I can tell you that um, there is a lot of internal structuring going along within the poems themselves, but I'm not prepared to reveal mm, that just okay. yet. Well, that's actually where <laughs> I was going to go next, is, is to come back to this idea of, of counting the syllables. Um, so, and, and I know that you write all your poetry in syllabics, is that right? I do, yeah. That 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 part I can talk about. Um, so let's, let's sort of say how it came about. Uh, back in, oh, I don't know what year it was now, but it was early noughties, I had this sudden grandiose idea that I was going to try to rewrite the entirety of Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ uh, as um, rhymed syllabic couplets. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, I did make a, and I did make a start on that. The archivist will be pleased to hear. Gosh. I made a start on that project. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And the reason I chose to do it syllabically rather than using the more, what is more typical in English poetry, which is accentual syllabic, where you're counting not just the number of syllables in a line, but also the beats uh, where, where, where the stresses, if you, if you like, where, where, they, where they appear, according to whatever pattern. Um, I found that when I thought about the way different English speakers stress uh, and unstress certain words in English, I found it a real stress, for want of a better word, uh -huh. um, to try to figure out where those beats were going to go. And I figured it was a lot easier for me to focus on the, the imagery and the lyricism of the poems if I simply counted the syllables. And that's how that idea first came about. Now, people often say, you know, you say you've got these nine uh, forms that you use exclusively, and that is true, I have. And yes, I do vary them a little at times if, it, if the poem requires it, but generally there are just these nine forms. And they say to me, how did they come about? And I say, the, the, the true answer to that is really not very exciting. Um, the first nine poems I picked out of my slush pile, everything I've been writing for about six months, the first nine that I picked up I literally looked at them and thought, how can I best break these syllabically? What kind of line structures will, will, will I get? And as soon as I got one that I was happy with, I said, right, that's a form. And that's a form. And that's a form. And when I got to nine, I stopped. I just thought, right, that's it. I've got nine forms. Every single thing I write from now on and everything that I revise from the past is going to fit one of those nine forms. And that was it. And the reason I constrained myself like that is because 
I am quite a uh, scattered person creatively. There are lots of different directions that I could take. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, before I became a writer, I did actually want to be a visual artist, for example. So there's there's other sides to me that would, would kind of be fighting each other to produce whatever it might be. Um, but when I'm constrained, and this is true as well of my uh, professional life as a copywriter, when I have very little space in which to do something, it forces me to be inventive and creative and to strain for that absolute right word or phrase or image such that with just very few words and very few syllables overall, I can conjure up in the mind of the reader what it is I want them to think or feel or see or indeed hear. Okay, because if I can be devil's advocate for a moment, the usual objection to syllabics in English is that English is a very stress-strong language. So syllabics are usually much more common in Romance languages like French or Italian or Spanish, where the there's not such a strong pattern of stress in the language, so it makes more sense for them to do it. And so the usual objection is, well, but you can't really hear it. If you're a listener, you can't hear it as much in English. You're going to be distracted by the stress pattern. But are you saying that for you the the real benefit of syllabics is that forcing you to examine every line syllable by syllable? Mm -hmm. So here is where I'm going to agree with you and say that that is precisely the effect I was trying to get. So, <laughs> so having the, the syllabic scaffolding, I'll call it, uh, is what allows me to say in an instant to the reader, this is a poem. The thing I've just put in front of you is a poem because it looks poemy. Mm -hmm. It looks like a poem, the way it's been broken up. Yeah. But what I always say to people is, pay less attention to where I have broken lines and broken stanzas and read it paying close attention to my punctuation. Because my poems work in two ways. One is for the eye. Mm -hmm. You can see that it's a poem. Yeah. The other is for the ear. And that is far more important to me, poetry being an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. When you read it back, you read it disregarding where the line breaks are. I don't want you to pause at the end of a line and do poet voice and, and, and that kind of <laughs> affectation that which, which far too many poets do. I'm yeah. sorry, but they do. Yeah. Just read on, follow my punctuation, stop where I stop, pause where I pause, try to express where I've put a semicolon or a, mm -hmm. uh, an end dash or whatever it might be, but use punctuation as the tempo markings of my work. And if you do that, you will get a performance in your own head, in your own space, similar, if not exactly like the one I wanted you to hear. And because I want my poems, though they are syllabic and they are very formal in the truest sense, I want them to feel like free verse. Mm. Well, you know, it's a recurring theme on this show. I always invite the listener to get the text of the poem from the website and read it aloud themselves because I think you get a totally different experience of the poem when you read it and it becomes a part of you as you speak it. So I think that would be a lovely thing for, for us all to do is, is to follow, listen to what Mark's just said about how to read the poem aloud. He's given us a great guide and we should all go home and, um, and, and read it aloud and, and, and test this out for ourselves. I think it's, a, it's quite an original approach, Mark, and it's also... Um, I guess the other th thing behind my question was, 
I really get the sense, you know, as we were saying earlier on, there's the freshness, there's the immediacy of uh, the writing that you've said comes partly from, from writing so close to the experience. But I also really get the sense you've gone through each poem with a fine-toothed comb. And there's so many little details to enjoy and, and to savour. I mean, again, listening to you reading it this morning, I was struck by the alliteration enclosed by encrypted conversations and the thickets of pulses and whistles and clicks. That's, that really does sound like the mimic, mimicking the rhythm of the birdsong. So, uh, you, you know, for me, I, I really love the, the precision that you've got to, however it's arrived at. Yeah, I'm, I'm th thank you, Mark. I mean, I, that's to know that somebody appreciates the effort that I have put in, even if the effort is not necessarily immediately obvious. I mean, I do write very short, very, as I call them, economic poems. Um, and, and one of the things that people often say to me on Twitter, for example, is you manage to do so much with so little, and to, which to me is the greatest compliment because that's precisely what I'm trying to do. I want to distill everything. I want to get it as small and as compact as possible, almost to dehydrate the essence of the poem and then give it to you. You can plant it in your own mind. You can water it. You can feed it. You can let it grow. You can gain something more from it by thinking about it. And I think that's that. it, it shows the relationship between reader and writer when there's something for you to do and it's not all just about me writing words and then reading them out to you on the website. Fantastic, Mark. Um, I think this would be a good time for us to listen to the poem again. And also, as I said to you, if you're listening to this, do go to subruria.com. Check out the other poems. As as Mark said, this is, this is from the third that is about the natural world, but there's also a lot of really uh, engaging um, poems that are much more about the human suburban world. So that's at subruria.com. So thank you, Mark, very much. Um, it's been an absolute delight to be in the world of your poems. Thank you, Mark, for having me as a guest. I've very much enjoyed it. Nothing the Hedgerows Say by Mark Anthony Owen I'm enclosed by encrypted conversation, thickets of pulses and whistles and clicks, songs, each border with a voice distinct as a man's, each tree a tongue. I hear the grass gossiping, repeating what it thinks the wind has told it, hear it whisper a secret from blade to blade, rush it away in all directions at once. Silence from me and the water overhead. Now a dragon. Now a sleeping boy. Dumb shapes. Fathoming nothing. Nothing the hedgerows say. Nothing the Hedgerows Say by Mark Anthony Owen is from his ongoing poetry project Subruria, published online at subruria.com. Poet and publisher Mark Anthony Owen is the author of digital poetry project Subruria, 
work from which has been reproduced in several online journals and podcasts, as well as nominated for the Pushcart Prize. His poem, Windmill Hill, was one of only 200 or so to be chosen from more than 7,500 poems for the anthology Places of Poetry, Mapping the Nation in Verse. Mark is also the creator and curator of quarterly poetry journal I Am, shortlisted in 2020 for the Independent Saboteur Awards Best Collaborative Work and the new online ekphrastic poetry space after. You can find links to all of these projects online at markantonyowen.com. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.